Greetings, folks, and welcome back to Patriots of the Crow Podcast. I am Thad Forrester, and I once again sincerely thank you for listening. This is episode number 30, and today I've got with me Benjamin Brandt, who is an Iraq War veteran. He joined the Army National Guard just out of high school, and he tells us, you know, it's really wasn't like some deep desire to, you know, serve our country. It was more so to make some money for for college. But he uh, deployed uh, to a war zone. He he was there for 15 months in late 03 to spring of 05. Uh, he was a combat engineer, and so he talks about the IEDs and how they changed and got more and more sophisticated while he was there. And uh, now he's a financial planner. So. I think uh, he was, he's never been able to, I don't think he's ever talked as much about his time in the military as he did maybe with me because just the nature of his work now, uh, he helps people retire. Uh, he works with Capital City Wealth Management out of Bismarck, North Dakota. Uh, website is retirementstartstoday.com. And he's usually uh, working with people who are around age 56, you know, on up in the mid 60s or so, helping them retire. And he's got a very good online presence. Uh, more so than I do, that's for sure. Uh, he's got a blog. He's got a uh, also a weekly segment uh, called Money Monday, on um, and bit out of this uh, local station out of Bismarck, and so you can find those those uh, segments on his blog. Uh, we talk about um, just some good solid advice for us about saving and, and about planning for a vacation, especially if you're on a limited budget. So very interesting talk with him. I, I really enjoyed it. And I, I really appreciate Ben uh, coming on with me today. So let's let's get into it. All right. Well, Benjamin Brandt, welcome to the show after a lot of technical difficulties. Hey, I'm happy to be here. <laughs> so thanks for actually kind of saving me with all the issues we've had. I'm not sure what's going on, but let's talk about you. And uh, before we get into what you do as a profession now, I want to hear about your military career and why you joined and what you uh, learned, and then, you know, what you did, you know, when you did deploy. Uh, yeah, I come from a real patriotic state here in North Dakota. We've got a, a real uh, strong National Guard presence uh, here in Bismarck. And uh, my best friend in high school, uh, his neighbor was a National Guard recruiter, and he waived a pretty significant signing bonus in front of a 19-year-old version of myself uh, to be a combat engineer. And the next thing I knew, I was in Fort Leonard Wood, Missouri, uh, up to my eyeballs in mud and learning how to, how to blow things up. Uh, and so they taught us how to be combat engineers. Uh, now, back then, combat engineers meant to clear lanes through minefields for cavalry or for infantry. Uh, but being a combat engineer today with the modern threats of IEDs means something quite different. Uh, so when we got deployed to Iraq in December of 2003, uh, our, our lives changed quite a bit, and we had to figure out how to clear supply routes for I, from IEDs. So... All right, so how long was your training before you did deploy to Afghanistan? Or, or actually, you were in Iraq, weren't you? Iraq, correct. Yep. So we okay. were the 141st Combat Engineers. We were attached to the 1st Inf- Infantry Division under Colonel Petard, who I think is actually now General Petard. Uh, we had a few weeks of training in Fort Carson, Colorado, but actually we didn't know what our job skill was going to be until we got in theater because the IED threat was brand new and it was ever changing. In fact, the the unit that we replaced, which was the the 3rd Infantry Division, had only found three or four IEDs their entire deployment. Uh, they were part of the invading force and then they had been moved to IED patrols later on as part of the peacekeeping part of the mission. And all of the ID all the IEDs that they had found were command detonated meaning uh, it's it's a hardwired IED from the shoulder of the road directly to wherever that 
uh, enemy is hiding. Within a f our first few weeks uh, in Samara, uh, Camp Brassfield Mora was our FOB, we found the, the very first uh, median-placed IED remote detonated that had been found in, in at least that area of operation. So uh, life started to change very fast as the threat changed, and we had to, uh, to adapt very quickly. So how did you find that one? Uh, just eyeballs. Uh, uh, fortunately or unfortunately, uh, the last guy in our patrol, uh, the, the tank commander, uh, we were in thin-skinned Humvees and five-ton dump trucks, believe it or not. Uh, he just happened to see a, a pile of dirt on the side of the road with a wire sticking out of it. Uh, we were told that they didn't have the technology to likely be in the median, but you know we figured out that they had figured it out. So, uh, so life, life changed quite a bit that day. So I'm curious what it, what happens then you, when you saw that. What were the next steps for you and your your team? That changed quite a bit over the course of our deployment. But originally, uh, when they were first trying to figure out what IEDs were and they were trying to build a case against whoever is building these IEDs in each area, we were we cordoned off the area and we called EOD and they would disarm the munition and then they would take it into for you know forensics. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. I actually kind of uh, forgot that you had the EOD come in and actually handle the the ID itself. Right. I, I should, so I how should else? clarify that EOD would blow the munition in place, but then they would collect forensics on the, the battery pack and the, the firing device and things like that. So things that you could probably okay. likely find fingerprints on. And then, of course, there would be technology connections, you know, th that there would be similarities where they could build a case against someone. Okay. So how else did they change, you know, over the course of the, you know, you were there for over a year. Sounds right. like about 15 months or so. Yep, it was a 15-month uh, deployment. And then, of course, a little bit of training on the front end and the back end. But about four or five months in, we started to get some mine-detecting equipment. Uh, so if you were in Iraq in 2004, you saw some Mad Max-looking vehicles <laughs> rolling through the Bakuba and Samara area. You know, those were combat engineers, trailblazers, and those were meerkats and huskies and things of that nature. So they were, uh, like I said, Mad Max-looking vehicles with paddles, mine-detecting paddles on the bottom. And so we would do a very slow patrol, you know, 15 to 20 miles an hour, and then we would just... It, we would just use our eyeballs, and if we saw some discoloration in the dirt or a wire sticking out, uh, we did the same patrol routes every day. So you really got to know what the side of the road looked like. Uh, and In fact, some people had it memorized. And then if you saw something that looked different, you'd mind sweep it. And if it, if, it, if it came up that there was some significant metal in the ground that wasn't there the day before, then you either blew it in place, called EOD. Uh, recon by fire was something we did often if we were in a place where we couldn't wait hours and hours for EOD. Uh, but uh, we, oh, so, what does that mean? What is recon by fire? Recon by fire <laughs> is uh, is a bit of a made up term that we used, but we would just shoot at it until it blew up. Basically, we were uh, <laughs> so we're the National Guard, of course, and so we fit a lot of stereotypes. But we had uh, we didn't have M240Bs; we had M60s. Uh, so we actually just shot right into the dirt. I, I blew up three IEDs with my trusty M60. Uh, believe it or not, uh, they're not supposed to blow up from shooting at them because they need they need heat and pressure, but the M60 was just the right tool, and, and it did the job. I don't know how, but it did it. <laughs> About how far away were you? Not ever far enough, usually across the street. <laughs> wow. wow. It was, uh, like I said, I'm 35 now. I was 21, 22 at the time. Uh, I can't believe I did that. That was so stupid. <laughs> well, you probably weren't the only one doing that. 
Yeah, no, I don't know. Maybe, maybe I just drew the short straw, or I was just dumb enough to do it. But uh, you know, I was, I was following orders, so <laughs> you know, I can kind of, I can blame that on someone else, can I? I'm just, I was just a lowly sure, specialist, sure. Oh, yeah. right? I wasn't, I was, wasn't making the decisions. <laughs> yeah, you were just a young punk. That's right. <laughs> so, did you have any? Did y'all ever have any issues with fratricide? With fratricide? No, yeah. not really. I mean, we would cordon off the area pretty well. Um, okay. So, you know, kill radius for the standard IED is a 155-millimeter artillery shell, so we'd do 300 yards one way, 300 yards the other way, try our best to stop civilian traffic, but they wouldn't listen to us sometimes. Uh, and then, uh, you know, make sure no helicopters are anywhere close. And then uh, if EOD was less than an hour or two away, we would just sit on it, and then they would blow it up. And if not, you know, occasionally we would take care of it ourselves. Okay. So help me, I guess, paint a picture here for me because I've never been there. I've never served. I mean, I've heard many, many stories and, you know, I've seen video and, but I'm just wondering in in your situation, so you have civilians still driving down the road also, and they see your convoy and, you know, I guess, did they, even at that point, were they kind of immune to seeing you and they just keep on going or, or, and were they kind of immune to hearing explosions? Yeah. I would say they were kind of immune to it. Maybe even blasé would be the word that they kind of have been there, done that, bought the T-shirt. They sort of weren't, they didn't fear it the way that we did. Uh, we were a very slow-moving patrol. So it was very difficult to sort of train the local populace that they had to, they couldn't They couldn't come through. You know, we were, we were in sort of a staggered position with our minesweepers in the middle and a Humvee or an armored, an armored uh, what we would call husky uh, in the back. So, if someone were to weave into our patrol, if they were a, a VB IED, you know, they could really give us a bad afternoon. So we wouldn't let any vehicles in our patrol. We would direct them to cross the median and, and cross, if they needed to pass our patrol, it through oncoming traffic, which they would do anyway. Uh, but we just said no exceptions. Everyone has to do that. We had a sign in Arabic and things like that. But uh, So that was really difficult to, to get them to uh, not weave in between our patrol. We, we had a lot of, of headaches with that. But if we cordoned mm-hmm. off the if we cordoned off an area, oftentimes they would simply drive around our cordon, and they would drive up onto a frontage road and pass the patrol and pass the cordon, and then go on their mer- merry way to the other side. So, <laughs> not something that we see in the United States at all. They drive insanely, um, but that's 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 their that's their culture, and they've made a go of it. So you know, who are we to say that they can't they can't do it, right? But yeah, very yeah. very hairy driving situations, absolutely. Well, I think that I read where the goal was to get the Iraqis to to go, I guess, perform the, the role that you were there doing. Is that right? And if so, did that ever happen? There were some efforts to train the Iraqi National Army to do some of the jobs that we were doing. I think maybe one or two shifts after our, uh, after our engineers did it, they picked that up. Uh, there would be rewards and things like that, that that we would see. You know, they'd pass out flyers to turn in munitions and things like that. But, uh, you know, uh, most of my deployment was spent in Bakuba, which is where they killed Zarqawi just a few months after we left. So, I mean, it was a pretty bad area. Uh, I, there weren't a lot of people that were, you know, buddy-buddy with us, unfortunately. So, so what were the... Uh what, what went through your head, you know, as you went out each day? And Well, I guess, first of all, maybe... How often a week did you go out on, on missions or patrols? And then, you know, I mean, how often did you feel like your life was really, really in danger? 
So we did 24-hour patrols. You know, we were we were in charge of three, um, kind of forgetting the names as I get older, but Blue Babe Highway, and th- th- this might bring, you know, ring some memories to people that were in that, that area of operations. But so we had, like, one large triangle. Hib Hib was one of the cities. Scunion was one of the routes. And we just had to patrol this triangle 24 hours a day. We had three platoons, and then we separated each platoon into two groups. Uh, so it was a skeleton crew. It was a driver, a gunner a tank commander, and then a minesweeper, um, four to six vehicles. So it was definitely a skeleton crew, uh, but we, we were in charge of that 24 hours a day, seven days a week. So um, as far as, you know, did we fear for our life every day? At first, of course, you do, but you get used to it like anything else. I mean, I would be terrified to jump out of a plane, but if I was a parachute, parachute instructor, eventually you just get used to it. So um, you just kind of make peace with it and know that if you hide inside your Humvee, you're never going to find an IED, and it's probably going to find you first. So the best way to stay alive is to be not scared to die, <laughs> and and you just try your hardest to find the IEDs before they find you. Okay, yeah. Well, that makes sense. Were you married at the time? I was not married, thank God. That was a big reason I decided to get out of the military is because I heard these, uh, you know, 31-year-old guys trying to raise their children from, you know, thousands of miles away on a six-second delay on some crappy phones in the MWR tent. And I said, uh, you know, I was 21 or 22 at the time. I said, I can't, you know, I definitely wanted a family. I wanted a lot of kids. And I said, I I can't do that. So as soon as I was able to get out, I got out. But uh, no, I had my girlfriend, who's my wife now, uh, but uh, not married at the time. So if I was married and, and did have kids, I could not see myself taking some of the risks that, you know, I was just barely out of being a teenager, you know, but risk means something totally yeah. different at that age. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I, I don't, I really don't see how guys do it that are, that have families. That'd be really, really, really tough on, on both sides, both, you know, the, the, the wife and the, the husband, both. Yeah, I can't, I can't imagine it. You know, your, your priorities change is how you're able to do it. I mean, you're, you're, in the patrol, I mean, it's forgotten country and all that stuff, but, but the reality of the situation is you're there for your battle buddy to the right of you and the battle buddy to the left of you, you know? Yeah. So what about, what 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 did you learn, you know, while in the while serving in the military that, whether it's a skill or whether it's a, I don't know, maybe a characteristic or something, what did you learn that you use now? So the biggest thing that I learned, I get this question a lot, the biggest thing I learned was actually a bit of a juxtaposition. So in the military, they teach you how to rely on your training, right, how to lean on your training. So they teach you to act without thinking. So if you had to, without training, if you if you wanted to engage the enemy, you'd have to think about, all right, there's the enemy. I need to acquire a target. I need to create a good sight picture. I need to have a good cheek-to-stock weld. I need to rotate my selector level from safe to semi. I'd have to pause my breathing, you know. If you thought about all that, it wouldn't work very well. So you train and train and train and train so you're able to complete that action without thinking. The funny thing is about financial advice is oftentimes you have to think without acting. So when the market is crashing, for instance, and you call your financial advisor up and you say, sell everything, I'm in a panic, you need to think about what you're doing. And likely the right situation or the right reaction is to not act. So you review your financial plan. You say, you know, we've accounted for this. We've got cash. We've got bonds on the sidelines. We've worked to reduce your debt. We've we've increased your emergency fund. You know, we've done all these things so that we didn't have to panic and we didn't have to act. So in the military, it's act without thinking. In financial planning, it's think without acting. Yeah, I I like that. (laughs) I wouldn't have thought about that. Yeah. What what were some... um, Maybe besides the well, the, the act without thinking part. What what is the, what were some negatives or a negative um, 
from being deployed? I really don't think there are any negatives. Uh, you know, we did some scary stuff and we were in some hairy situations. You know, uh, patrolling the same route every day at 15 miles an hour, uh, it, it's not very difficult to figure out where we're going to be and when and, you know, pop off a few shots at us or, you know, leave us, a, you know, a little present that, you know, to ruin your afternoon. Uh, but as a positive for, for being in combat, you know, if I have a TV interview or a podcast interview or I'm recording a podcast myself, things that would be pretty scary, you know, in a normal situation become a lot less scary when you've been in some of those hairy situations. So it sort of builds up your self-confidence that, hey, if I survive that, I could probably survive a lot of other things. Yeah, I'd imagine. Yeah, that should that should help you get through, you know, any tough situation, any trial. Right. It, it's like I've been here before and I've been through worse and I survived. So why can't there's no reason in my past to believe I can't surmount this this object that's in front of me. Interesting. So, yeah, Task Force Trailblazer. So uh, listeners go look it up and, and can read about what he did. And um, I want, were there any adjustment problems when you came home or did your girlfriend or your parents say, hey, you know, you're different? Anything no. like that? <laughs> no, uh, my family was not shy about it at all. <laughs> and I think some of your listeners will laugh at this, but on the ride home from my airport, I, I don't want to put my mom on blast too much, but she won't listen to this. So <laughs> my, mom, <laughs> my mom does not have a shy bone in her body. So on the way home from the airport, she asked me if I killed anybody, <laughs> which is kind of a something you don't <laughs> ask a soldier. But, yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, so I kind of had to, it was like a roll your eyes, oh, mom moment. You know, we've all had those moments with our moms, I think, right? <laughs> oh, mom. Yeah, she didn't waste any time. She no, just went right into not it. Not shy at all. So <laughs> funny. No, my family handled it, handled it great. I do have, I did have, I do have, I don't know what the, how you say it, but, you know, I do have PTSD. I was diagnosed with PTSD. Visited with the VA doctors about it for a while. Saw some head shrinkers about it for a while, maybe six months after uh, after I got home. I did have some trouble studying. I, I made the mistake of jumping right back into college and trying to read a textbook and just having all these thoughts of, man, I can't believe we did that, this, and I can't believe we did that. It made it really hard for me to actually concentrate on my material. But, you know, talking with friends, talking with some head shrinkers, I got past it. So I don't know if you ever get over PTSD completely, but I, I don't have any day-to-day side effects right now. Okay. Well, yeah, I, I do appreciate how open you are about that, and you might as well be. Right, um, might as well be I, whatever situation I'm going through. I know there's a lot of guys that go through a lot worse, and so if if me talking about it can help them talk about it, which is how I got over it, why not? Was that what helped the most? Is, is was that what helped the most? Is just just being able to verbalize how you were feeling, or or what had happened in the past? I think so, and then time heals all wounds. I think you know that's what at least what speaks truth to my situation. I know there's some guys that were in a lot worse situations that maybe didn't get over it as quickly, uh, and I'm not just going to be the guy that says, "Hey, buck up," you know, put on your big boy pants and get over it, because I know that's not how the human mind works. Uh, but for me, for my solution was talking about it with friends, and I met with, like I said, the VA head shrinker half a dozen times or so, um, and and it worked for me. Great. Okay. Well, why don't we move on to to uh, your life post military? You got out after eight years in two thousand nine, right? And um, you know, I, we can talk about your profession in a second. But uh, I, I am interested. I did read where, by the way, for the listeners, you have a weekly TV show called Money Monday, or it's a segment on the news. I guess is that what it is? 
Right, yeah, if you're local to Bismarck. Uh, we're on a bit of a hiatus right now for the summer, but, yeah, Money Monday on our local CBS affiliate, 6.30 a.m. Monday mornings. If you, f- if you like our page, Capital City Wealth Management on Facebook, or follow me on Twitter, uh, at RetireMeASAP. I'll, I'll tweet all those out. If your listeners aren't from North Dakota, of course, they wouldn't get our local feed, but I post everything on social media afterwards. So uh, we like to have a little bit of fun with it. Uh, last uh, last Halloween, they double-dared me to uh, appear in my segment in a full gorilla costume, so I, I did that. Uh, you can check that out. I, I think that's my pinned, my pinned tweet on, on Twitter, but, you know, I, I'm not one to back <laughs> I mean, down I to a dare. <laughs> I'm not one to back down from that's a dare. That's good, yeah. Okay, well, that probably helped your – I bet you gained more followers with that. I hope so. You know, I, it was really something out of, like, a John Hughes movie from the 80s, you know, like, uh, hey, let's invite the nerd and tell him it's a costume party and he'll be the only one wearing a costume. <laughs> I, I had that fear through my head weeks before, you know, and they confirmed, no, we're all going to be wearing costumes. We're all going to be wearing costumes. And sure enough, I showed up that morning, 6.30 in the morning, in, in late October in North Dakota, right? So it's already a strange situation driving to work in a full-grown full gorilla, gorilla costume. And I showed up, and I'm the only one, hand to God, I'm the only one wearing a costume. So I wasn't going to I wasn't gonna back down from an opportunity to be on TV in a gorilla costume. So, uh, yeah, I talked about emergency. You owned it. I owned it. I owned it. Uh, I was so excited to wear the gorilla costume on TV, I forgot to mic myself up. <laughs> but that's probably something only I would notice. But uh, it, it worked, and it was uh, one of the best experiences I had on live TV is to be, you know, I look like an idiot, of course, but, you know, if it made people pay attention and, and maybe improve their lives a little bit, it, it was worth it. But I, I really had to laugh at that. Well, um, I'll have links posted in the notes for the listeners, and so that's one link I'd like to get is the is for that, that clip. You bet. Yeah, I think it's my pinned tweet on Twitter. Okay, great. Well, well, I know you hired a – I read. I think I read this about you where you hired a private investigator to uh, explain what, that, what happened and why you did it and, and maybe the details of, of how it worked. Yeah, so uh, the funny thing, the embarrassing thing about being a financial advisor – is that one, the term financial advisor is not regulated in any way. I mean, you could call yourself a financial advisor tomorrow if you wanted. Uh, The barrier of entry is is embarrassingly low. And two, there is an extreme lack of transparency uh, when it comes to hiring a financial advisor. Anywhere from how your fees are billed out of your account to what their compensation is to what what their career background might be or even their criminal background, what kind of customer complaints they might have. So... I'm really irritated by that because I have 10 years in the industry. I have some of the hardest designations that a financial advisor can get. And really, from the outside looking in, I'm just like any other financial advisor. So as most of my good ideas come to me, it came to me in the shower, I said, short of hiding in my bushes with binoculars, what would be the greatest extent a client could go to to vet me as a financial advisor? And then how could I exceed that expectation? So I decided I'm going to go online and I'm going to hire a private investigator to follow me around from a, from a digital perspective. Uh, so on Fiverr.com, F-I-V-E-R-R, if anybody wants to check out the website, you can hire people to do any sort of number of tasks, and I found a private investigator on there. And I paid him, I think, 50 bucks or 60 bucks, and he gave me like this 90-page report of my life, uh, what dorm room I stayed in in college, who my suite mates were, every car I've ever driven, including the VIN numbers, uh, Things that you would not expect to be online, let me tell you, they're online. So I did this as kind of a goof because it was part of a blog post I wrote about financial advisor transparency. But 
Uh, I made that as a free download on my website if anybody wants to to check out my background report just to you know show them that I don't have too many skeletons in my closet. I have a few, but not too many. <laughs> Did you edit the report at all that, that is posted? I edited the report a little bit. Uh, you know, I want to keep the identity thieves at bay, but uh, I do have what he listed as two criminal convictions, and I left those in for everyone to see if they're curious. Uh, I, in my defense, though, before I was in the military, I delivered pizzas in the 30 minutes or it's less uh, universe, and that developed <laughs> quite a few yeah. bad driving habits. And both of my uh, – I, I joke and say they're criminal convictions because that's how they're listed, but they're two speeding tickets. Ah, okay. Yeah. A lot of people don't realize. Yeah, Domino's 30, had to get rid of that. That's right. A lot of people don't realize thirty minutes or it's free. That's not coming out of Domino's pocket. That's your minimum wage delivery driver's loss. So that so good thing they dropped that. Yeah, I never realized that. Well, it's interesting. Very interesting. I, I would. Um, I, I've had friends. A friend of mine who's very well versed online. He has pulled up different websites before with information about me that blew my mind. And that was several years ago. That was back before I was even, you know, texting. But I mean, it doesn't take much to blow me away with, with technology or with, um, yeah, with what information is available online. Oh, I'll absolutely be hiring this guy again. My girls are nine and eight. So in about five years, I'm going to have this guy on speed dial for uh, checking these boys out that are walking, running around my house. <laughs> well, you, you, your listeners make it, Get him a lot of business, yeah. Here in a few years, that's right. Yeah, <laughs> or maybe well, now. His his business name and his phone number are on my on my background check. So download it and give him a shout. Oh, that's awesome! Yeah. So I'd like to talk a little bit about just get into some financial stuff. You so bet. How we can you know how we can you know a, a, something applicable really to us now or something actionable. I have uh, never fully followed this, but it's like a debt elimination calculator. So where you have your debts, you pay off the one that that you can that you owe the least on. And then you take that money once you pay it off and you apply that money you were paying and add it to the next one that you owe the least on. And it just kind of um you keep paying the same amount each month, but then you start adding it to the other debts. Is that I think you said that's a Dave Ramsey technique as well. Yes. So that's called the debt snowball. That's what I used to get out of debt. And uh, so when my wife and I first got married, you know, she had some student loan debt and I had some other debt, cars and, you know, the normal stuff. And so we started, uh, we took this Dave Ramsey class at our church and then we liked it so much we actually taught about a dozen of them, uh, Financial Peace University. So uh, Dave Ramsey calls it the debt snowball. And I've, I've helped, I don't work with younger clients anymore. I work with retirees. But when I worked with younger clients, that was my favorite method to get people out of debt and get them on some solid financial footing. So how it works is you li- list your debts from smallest to largest, regardless of the interest rate, and you attack the smallest debt until you eliminate the debt. And then you take that payment, and then you roll that into the next debt and attack it, and then eliminate that debt and roll it into the next one. So the amount, if you have, if your smallest debt is a student loan that you pay $23 a month, and then your second debt is your furniture on your credit card that you pay $30 a month, you know, you take that smaller payment, I don't know what I said, $32 a month, pay that off. Then you roll the 32 on top of the 50. Now you've got 82, and you just keep rolling those up until your last debt you've got you know, $1,100 a month that you're pounding away at that debt every month. And it's a really effective way to keep your momentum up. And every few months or so or every few weeks when you kill that small debt, you get this little attaboy, this little you know, uh, reward 
Uh, Definitely. Right, you're gamifying getting out of debt. So you get these attaboys as you as you keep going. So it has nothing to do with the interest rates. That's the next question I get. Well, what if I have high interest rate? It's not about the interest rate. It's not about math. It's about momentum and behavior modification. So it really works. It works for me. And if just Google Dave Ramsey Financial Peace University, where, whatever city you're in, if we've got it in Bismarck, we've got it wherever you're at, trust me. Uh, and I'd sign up for that class. It was It's really, really impactful. I'd recommend it to anyone. Yeah, so is that that's the method that you get you, you tell anyone who's in debt? Anyone, the one you use? anyone that's in debt that wants to get out of debt quickly. I mean, if you're going to kind of pussyfoot around and drag your feet, that's not a good solution. Then you should probably, if, if you've made up in your mind you're going to get out of debt the slowest way possible, you know, then you're going to want to attack the largest interest rate first uh, so that you can at least you know, stop digging uh, the hole that you're in and, and try to climb out. So that's a, a different way to do it. But if you want to get out of debt quickly, the momentum way, the snowball ways is what I've found works best for me and then for people that I've counseled through, through the process. Yeah, I agree. I, I like it as well. And that's what I, I have followed that multiple times, though, unfortunately. So still yeah. have debt. Yeah, that, that's that's difficult. Yeah, the the number one thing is to quit digging if you find yourself in a hole, right? So I don't own any credit cards. I uh, got in trouble with one at uh, college. You know, they give you a free T-shirt. And, of course, being an, an idiot, being 18 years old, I signed up for a credit card. And surprise, surprise, I found myself in trouble with it weeks later. So, you know, and I think that followed me around for a year until I figured out how to get rid of it. So, you know, I, I got once bitten, twice shy, and I haven't touched a credit card since. That's impressive. Very impressive. Um, okay, what about vacation planning on a limited budget? Yeah, so this is one of the recent Money Monday segments I did. One of the anchors uh, had this as a, as a question that they wanted answered. And so I kind of racked my brain and I thought, you know, there are, I think the easy answer is don't go on vacation if you can't afford it, right? But there are instances that come up like there's a, uh, a wedding or a family reunion or something where you've just got to be there. You know, Aunt Mabel's not going to be around for too many more family reunions, right? So you've got to be there. You've got to get to Dallas in three months, and you'd have no money, and how do you get there? So uh, it, it's kind of a fun, a fun thing to think about. You know, if you absolutely had to save up some money and you've got three months to do it. So I came up with three bullet point items for the segment. If they check my Twitter, they can watch me uh, watch the segment as well. But if you're if you're trying to budget on a month-to-month basis, that's fine for long-term goals. But for short-term goals, I want you to increase that by 30. So rather than having one monthly meeting, have 30 daily budget meetings with your spouse. And by having those daily meetings, you're going to be able to to, to chisel out you know, and carve out a dollar here or two dollars there, and you're going to find that that adds up pretty quickly. So you know, quick tip number one would be don't meet once a month, meet once a day having a money meeting with your spouse. The second one would be change your uh, your monthly budgeting goals to things that aren't round numbers. So we tend to be creatures of habit and maybe a little bit lazy with our budget. So we would say, I want to spend $400 next month on groceries, right, $100 a week. The more that you break that number down into near-term goals, weekly or biweekly or even daily goals, you can find better ways to trim that number down. So rather than $100 a week, maybe it's $80 a week or $75 a week. You know, if you can just reduce that monthly goal to weekly and then trim that weekly goal a little bit, right there is $100 a month that you could save. Just by, you know, you're increasing that accountability is really what the secret is. So that's tip number two, no more round numbers. If your budget, you know, your monthly budget is 400 for groceries, it's not anywhere. Now it's $367, right? So you want to, you want to dial it into the penny. 
And then the third one is find out what you can press pause on. So there are all sorts of monthly things that add up in our lives, gym memberships, Netflix, Hulu. You know, I'm, I'm uh, guilty of all of those. But if you have a short-term goal that, you, that is a higher priority than those small monthly items, press pause on those items and then resume them once you get back from the family reunion or the vacation or the wedding or whatever it might be. So you could probably find 50 to to $100 a month that you can press pause on, and you won't miss it for the couple months while you're saving. Take that money, put it in the vacation envelope, uh, and you'll be really surprised how fast that adds up. And maybe you'll find out you can live without it uh, and then uh, keep socking that money away in savings once you get back from your trip. Yeah. You know, the, the bill that I despise paying every month is TV. Yeah. And um, I'm always thinking, okay, look, there's just a few channels I watch. And, of course, at least for us down here, Ben, is, uh, you know, football is, is pretty popular. And that's one thing that I love to do in the fall is watch it. And um, so it's like, well, you know, now you, it, having your basic, your ABC, CBS, NBCs is not enough because ESPN has so many of the games. Right. And their their family. So it's like I have to have cable, you know, or a dish every year. So And, I, and anyway, so I have put mine on hold. For several months, use the antenna. You still get some pretty good channels that way. You bet. And then reactivate it. You know, in the fall, come come September first. Yeah, you know, cord cutting is kind of what it's called. You know, Reddit has a lot of threads dedicated to cord cutting. And the biggest complaint is that you know at live sporting events. So I like to watch UFC. You need cable to do that. Uh, when I started Capital City Wealth Management back in 2014, I knew I was going to take about a 50% hit to my income. So my wife and I had to pour over our budget and, and just find any place that we possibly could. We didn't want to sell our house, and we didn't want to take our kids out of private school. So anything else was game for being cut. And cable TV is one of the things that we cut. Uh, we did get grab Netflix, and I think we picked up Hulu and Amazon Prime later on. Uh, but we we did cut it. So, you know, go to the bar or go to a friend's house or, you know, depending on how badly you want to get out of debt, uh, you got to make some of those sacrifices. But if you're big into live sports, that is like the one reason to keep cable around is because live sports. uh, But that won't always be the way. Like even I think it's Thursday Thursday night football is going to be on Twitter now. Is that am I remembering that? I haven't heard that. Yeah, I think it's. I think so. Thursday night football is live streamed on Twitter. I'm not a football fan. I'm like the only guy in North Dakota that's not a football fan. Uh, but I, I just heard that because uh, Twitter is big with with uh, financial bloggers. So I'm, I'm, I'm big into Twitter. Well, those are yeah, those are really good, you know, actionable items. Um, very practical. I mean, what, uh, what else? Like, I'd like to know about just your business. What, what really is your business? I know you focus on, you know, retiree. More, you know, how you got into it and really maybe what you do. Right. So we only do one thing. We teach people how to retire. So we don't work with very young clients. We don't work with very old clients. We focus uh, strictly on financial planning. So, you know, if some Rockefeller type called us up tomorrow and say, hey, here's a million dollars I want you to pick stocks with. We don't do that. You know, we don't do any investment only clients. Uh, we do portfolio management, but only for people that have a written financial plan with us. Uh, so we have our Retire Ready Blueprint, which is a three-appointment process uh, where we teach people how to retire, and then we hand them their financial plan. And, and if they're a do-it-yourselfer, they can execute that on their own. We do a lot of second opinions for people that might have a family member or a close friend as their financial advisor, but they want to you know, double-check things. You really only get one shot at your retirement. Uh, so we do a lot of second opinions. But then occasionally people will hand the plan back to us once it's complete and say, I want you to execute this for me. 
Uh, so then we open up a brokerage account with Fidelity as our custodian, and then we pick the index funds and ETFs, and then we send them their retirement check every month, and, and we do the portfolio management for a select group of people, not for everybody. Okay. So, so, to, um, to, so to summarize it quickly, we teach people how to retire. Gotcha. Okay. So most of your clients are ages, what would you say, upper 50s to mid 60s? Yep. So North Dakota is, is pretty concentrated uh, as far as what our economies are. So most of my clients, almost all my clients are very blue collar, uh, coal mines and oil fields. And uh, yeah, they're that 55 to 62 range is, is most of the clients that I meet for the first time that are, you know, they're six months or six years from retirement. And they say, I've never had a financial advisor. I've always worked with Vanguard or my company's pension. And I'm kind of clueless when it comes to when do I take Social Security? What is Medicare? How does it work? What do I do with my employer, health care? What does my wife do? And so we solve all those problems for them. Have you ever thought about writing a book? Uh, because I know there's plenty of books out there that cover those kind of things, and there's loopholes. And Has that been a thought of yours before? I'm definitely going to write a book someday. Uh, I, when, I, when I publish blog posts, I, I consider that to be a chapter or half a chapter or a section in a book. So some, at some point, I will, you know, work with an editor and gather up all my blog posts and, and make, you know, a seamless narrative that, that flows through. But all of my blogging is around, you know, the same topic, obviously, retirement income planning. So that's how I look at writing a book is every time I publish a blog post, I'm just a fraction of a step closer to a book. And I'm, I'm certain within a couple of years, I'll, I'll have written a book. I've got a couple of themes in mind, but that's definitely on my bucket list is to, is to publish a book. Good, yeah. And that makes sense. You've already got so much content out there already. Yeah, so one other thing I wanted to ask you is, and this is very prominent. I have plenty of people who have done, who do this. I have done it, and I'm scared to do it again. But there's so many credit card offers that you know that that you know you, you've got your Marriott, your your Hilton, your Delta, any type of credit card you want that offers Southwest. You know, it offers you, you know, Sky Miles, or they offer you hotel stays. Um, and so plenty of people I know that they, they take these offers regularly. And then they they actually, if they're disciplined enough, then, then they've got they got a vacation. They've got the airlines. They can take their family somewhere, and they're only paying forty bucks or something. And then they've got a hotel to stay in. So, what are your thoughts on doing that? I think that if you play with fire long enough, you're going to get burned. <laughs> uh, you know, when you go to so the the biggest, the nearest big city to us is Minneapolis. And if you look at all those skyscrapers, those are all banks and credit card companies, right? I mean, they've done the math. And they know that podcasters or financial bloggers or whoever you talk to would say, hey, be careful and be disciplined with those with those mileage credit cards or, or what have you. But they know that when we internalize that, we all think we're that disciplined, right? <laughs> but in reality, uh, if we polled all of our friends uh, and asked them if we were disciplined enough to do that, they would probably say no. So, you know, it's kind of a look to your left, look to your right. If neither one of them are the sucker, you're the sucker, kind of a poker game kind of a thing. <laughs> yeah. So we yeah. all think we're disciplined enough. But in reality, we're probably not. So I'm not going to be the guy that says don't use credit cards uh, at all. Uh, you know, I don't take it to that extreme because I, I know other financial bloggers that are able to plan out vacations and, you know, still budget very, very strictly. There are a lot of studies that say you do spend more when you put it on a credit card. Uh, I, I actually have a blog post about it. There was a study done by done in Bradstreet that in the McDonald's drive-thru, which is a perfect way to gauge, you know, there, I can't, can't think of a better 
example of spontaneous purchases, right? You look at the value menu and you decide what you want, right? You're making an, an impulse decision. If you paid cash, you actually spent 50% less than if you swiped your card. And that's because it, when you hand over cash, that's that tangibility pain factor that's firing pain you know, into, into the back of your brainstem that you're handing over cash. And you don't have that feeling when you swipe. So you know, it's a proven fact that you will spend less money if you don't swipe it on a, on a credit card. And that's, you know, the, these banks are profiting off that. You know, if you spend more, then the percentage fee that McDonald's charges goes up, their profits go up, and then that's how they're able to offer airline miles and things like that. So, uh, again, I'm not going to tell anybody not to do it, but I'm going to say that we're all thinking that we're disciplined enough, but in reality, maybe 10% of us are. So really yeah. be disciplined. And if you have been in credit card trouble in the past, you meaning the broad audience, you know, probably want to stay, you know, stay away from from things like that, just because if you, if you play with fire long enough, you're probably going to get burned. <laughs> I, I don't own a credit yeah. card myself um, just because I did get burned in the past and sort of, uh, you know, maybe sticking it to the man a little bit. But, uh, you know, I don't, I don't want to have a credit card. I don't want somebody earning interest. Uh, when I have a bad month and I can't make my bills that month, uh, it's been a long time, fortunately, but I don't want somebody making interest off of, off of my uh, crappy month, you know? Yeah. Hey, I agree with you. I agree with you 100%. I'm, I'm not there but I do believe in it. I believe what you're doing is the way to go. Yep. Live on a budget. Um, live on less than you make. Have an emergency fund, and, and your needs for a credit card go way, way down. That's right. Uh, you know, all the things I had to do when I did do the Hyatt hotel cards. I got one for me and one for my wife. We were going to take a trip. We each get two free nights if we spend a certain amount of money in the first three months. And uh, man, now we did it. And we had no issues. We paid it off. No interest was paid. But, man, the loops I had to go through to to get that done the way I wanted to. I mean, I, I, would, I, had to, I went to CVS and bought get Visa gift cards. <laughs> and, then, uh, I mean, then I had to go to Walmart. I had to set up the, the American Express Bluebird account and go to Walmart and deposit money in there and then take that and deposit to my checking account and then pay the bill. And uh, halfway through um, – Bluebird quit accepting gift cards. So anyway, it was it was, it was a hassle. Man. And we got four free nights of a hotel, and we used one night of those four. We gave the other three away to because we weren't going to use them. So right. anyway, yeah, you know, and I would say so if well. you if you have a lot of savings that you can kind of you know bail yourself out if you run into a tough spot. But if you're living paycheck to paycheck and you're kind of trying to balance all these checks, imagine if your water heater would have blown up. Or your roof would have blown off, or one of your kids got sick, or you got sick and couldn't go to work for a few weeks during that. You know, initial you got to spend thirty-two hundred dollars in the first month, or whatever the program is. You know, again, that's you know Murphy's. You know, when you start to stretch yourself thin, that's when Murphy's law kind of moves in, and uh, God knows what <laughs> what terrible things could befall you. So I don't know. I, I see the appeal to getting some free mileage and, and getting some free hotel rooms, but you got to be careful. Got to be disciplined. Yeah, you do. Well, one last question, Benjamin. Um, what this is not necessarily your area of expertise, maybe officially, but uh, you're a pretty smart guy and experienced. So, I, I just I was just thinking about the you, know, you think a, a young guy going into the military right now. Let's say he's going in full time, and um, you know our military doesn't get paid near enough. We know that. Amen. So, what kind of advice would you give a young guy who's enlisting? You know, what kind of financial advice? So, the first piece of advice. I would give would be do as I say, not as I do. 
Uh, I was that textbook National Guard soldier that was forever a specialist. I think I got promoted to E4 about two months uh, out of basic training, and I stayed there for all eight years uh, just because I knew that I wasn't going to be a full-time soldier, and if I took an E5 slot, I was taking one away from uh, from uh, someone that was going to be in the National Guard for the rest of their life. And because I'm, I'm you know, kind of a pain in the rear end, you know, so I didn't exactly get along with our leadership occasionally. So... I was never promoted other than just the one time. So don't listen to me for that. It's a do as I say, not as I do. But if you're a full-time soldier, you're going to want, I mean, a, 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 a buck private or even a PFC doesn't make hardly any money for the risk that you're taking with, uh, with your, your, your life and limb. So I think a soldier, if they want to get promoted, they've got two jobs. One is obviously be a full-time soldier, but the next is to be a professional uh, promotion earner. Right, so you need to do everything that you can. Obviously, you need to work out so you can pass the PT test. You got to work out so you can pass your your BMI and your tape. Right, those are that's low hanging fruit. Right, don't you don't want to defeat yourself by not being able to live up to those basic standards. But the second thing you can do is learn the job of the guy in front of you and learn the job of the guy behind you. You know, so if you're a, if you're an E3, learn the corporal's job and learn the private's job. Be able to do both of them as well as the person that's currently doing them can do. That What that will do is it will make you indispensable to your squad, which will make you ind- indispensable to your platoon, and your leadership is going to notice that. The second thing that you need to do for a side hustle is there are all sorts of resources online that can boost you up the promotion list. So getting a two-year degree, getting a four-year degree, you know, taking all sorts of um, additional continuing education. There's a term for it. I've been out for a decade, so I'm losing a lot of these these, uh, terms. But take classes online. uh, Learn other MOSs. Whatever it it is you need to do, your side hustle needs to be be the guy that's the most promotable in your unit. And before you know it, you'll have a whole bunch of uh, rockers on your arm and you'll be making all sorts of money. That's good. That's good stuff. So um, what else before we close up, Benjamin? Anything in closing? No, I'd, I'd invite everybody to check out my podcast, RetirementStartsTodayRadio.com. We, we put out a couple episodes a month, and we uh, do interviews, and we do monologues, and we find interesting people to talk to. So we've, we've covered you know, how to retire abroad. We've covered how to find contentment in retirement. Uh, we talked about hiring a private investigator to follow your financial advisor around and all sorts of fun things like that. Uh, as a special thank you to your listeners, if they check out my website, that would be retirementstartstodayradio.com slash patriot. I have put uh, my recent, uh, most recent episode of my podcast, a couple of my favorite blog posts, and then a special thank you for your listeners for uh, checking out our episode. Yeah, appreciate that. You bet. Yeah, well, I'll, I'll share that, and um, it's been a pleasure. It's been a pleasure. Anything else that uh, our listeners need to be directed to? No, I, I just uh, I thank you so much for what you're doing to, to showcase uh, veterans and military service people. I feel like I, uh, I listened to quite a few of your episodes, and some of those guys I can't hold a candle to with my military service, uh, but I'm just honored to be, to be featured on your show. And uh, you know, a big shout-out to all of our active service uh, men and women. I really appreciate what you do, uh, especially uh, those lifers. That's something I couldn't, I couldn't hack it. I couldn't do it. Uh, so thank God for those of you that can. Yeah, well, I'm sure your body would be feeling a little more now too if you had a, if you were still in. <laughs> it was hard for me to do that stuff at 22. At 35, I'd be a sad sack. <laughs> well, great having you. Uh, it's been a pleasure. Thank you, sir. You bet. Thank you so much for having me.